I'm Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. And this week, I'm thrilled to have my longstanding friend, Jean Sung, with us all the way from Asia. She's in Singapore today, but based in Hong Kong. Jean is the executive director and the head of the Philanthropy Center at J.P. Morgan Private Bank in Asia Pacific. As many of you know, J.P. Morgan Bank is part of the larger entity that we know as the multi-trillion dollar asset manager. Before she was the Philanthropy Center head, Jean was managing the firm's corporate giving for 13 Asian countries. And in this role, Jean developed programs and services designed to develop livelihood and workforce skills. She implemented these programs with nonprofits and multilateral partners. She also developed a really great initiative that allowed for country-specific needs assessment. This included KPIs or key performance indicators, budgets and timelines to respond to social needs with programs and services that were aligned with the company's own giving strategy. This is really critical because measurement is such an important part of both business, but also philanthropy and social impact. So we're going to talk a lot about that and other things today. But first, welcome to The Caring Economy, Jean Sung. Thank you, Toby. It's wonderful to be friends with someone like Toby, who's passionate and compassionate about population, people, our world, our planet, our common home. I think I feel I'm very lucky to be in this position. Not that only I'm surrounded by allies, but I also meet philanthropists, givers, clients, whether they own their own business, first generation or second, third generation. Everyone has the uh, DNA of giving back. So no matter what you do, the three words that really explain or represent, resonate with myself and the work that I do is learn, earn and return. I think for myself, if I think about my own journey, as a child, my father's always said to me, everything that you learn stays in your head. Nobody can take it away. But what you learn should also be able to help you to earn, to earn a living, to be responsible, to earn a respectful persona, behavior, or even a characteristic that he embodies, which is Never take everything away from the table. Always leave something. And then the third thing is, again, something he taught, is we always have the responsibility to give back. doesn't matter whether you earn a dollar or $10 or a million dollars. We have to return because that's our responsibility of helping one another. Mm-hmm. And I think when I look at the world today with the people that I work with, Uh, from the foundation days, looking after J.P. Morgan Chase Foundation, or even my volunteerism days before I joined the bank, and now on the advisory uh, platform for the private bank. I work with so many walks of life people who could be just wanting to give back. It's not necessarily that they have the financial resources or the means but there is a genuine responsible thought that we must return and look after our community. And I think there it comes to value. So in a way, I am sometimes disappointed that we've lost the human value in life 
we are so busy with things that we do. We are bombarded with so many media, social media, with so many news every day. Mm-hmm. We've lost a sense of value between each other, mm-hmm. between our faith and between our neighborhood. So I feel that with COVID, we've actually uh, brought that back. We've actually stepped on the gas. You know, we are not on our own. We cannot survive on our own. We do need to have this community spirit to think about the common good. It's an exciting time for me in a way, because I don't want to use the word exciting that I'm excited because we've got so many social issues. I'm excited because there are so many people that I meet with whose first question is, how do I give back? I want to have a greater outcome. I want to have a greater impact. Well, it's an inspiring opening, and you're such an inspiring colleague to me. It's it's not surprising. But let's go back to the very beginning. You've talked about your dad a bit. Tell us how you grew up. I'd love to know about the role your mom had, where you went to school, how you started your career, because I know you first started out in the nonprofit sector and rose through there before the bank identified you. I think I can also humbly add, I was the first female in my family to have a formal education, and that's entirely due to my father. He believed in education because he didn't have a formal education. He taught himself. He was really one of those generation that was, you know, in the middle of the war years. He was from a family of 11 children. He lost his two brothers, elder brothers during the war. He was on his own. He had to take on the role of being the father, the brother of looking after his mother and his siblings. Mm -hmm. So to him, though, the idea of, of work is very important. Do a good day's job and always do a good day's job. Whatever you can do today, do it today. Mm-hmm. But it also gave me the, um, the, the, the impetus as a child that, yes, he always said, you know, the early bird catches the worm. At the same time, it's not to be wasteful. We were not allowed to waste. And, you know, being a typical Chinese family, you could imagine my mother was very frugal. She came from a wealthier family, so to speak, than my father. So there was already this, you don't marry beneath you. But my mother did because they were truly in love. Mm -hmm. I've never seen my parents argue with themselves. They're always holding hands. And I miss the both of them because to me, that was the great example of value of family life. So that's very important to me. And I can see it within my own family, my children, my siblings, and it kind of, grows because that's kind of who we are, what what Mm -hmm. we do. My mother is a very typical housewife. She was educated at home with her sisters. And she's had the idea that, you know, girls, not necessarily allowed to be educated. You'll get married and it'll be gone anyway. So forget about it. So in a way, I grew up in a family where father was very determined and mother was, it's okay, go and comb your hair a little bit, you know, <laughs> go, and, you know <laughs> go and put on a better dress. You know, you don't have to look like a tomboy. Because supposedly when I was young, going to primary school, I would come home, ride a bike. And then she would always add, but you were always really good at school because your father taught you the discipline. So I didn't mind you riding a bike, but I did, didn't want you to be such a tomboy because you, you lead a bad example for your sisters. And it wasn't until my father's passing that we realized he wrote a journal. And right. in his journal, he wrote how he felt that he was lucky that even after the war years, he had a benefactor who looked after him 
and he felt that he needed to help young people from his own village. He's from Ningpo. He, he did many things that I thought was so exemplary. He supported nursing, nurses from China to go to America. He wrote to President Bush Sr. and said, I'm a retired ship owner and I'm living in San Francisco. If you need boats and people with food and blankets wow. to go into the war, I think it was the, the Iraq war, wow. I can do that. And he had a letter back from uh, the president saying, I think you need to enjoy your retirement. But he was given a pin. So when he when he died, we put that pin on him. And I know he would be pleased. So we have this great, this family tradition of remembering our elders mm -hmm. and remembering where we come from and not be, not be ashamed of it or not to be sad about it. Because each generation can excel the last generation in terms of transferring our family value and teaching the next generation the importance of love. I mean, you come from a family where service is important, community is important. And I guess that's part of what got you early on in your career into sort of a nonprofit space. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it was a dare, Toby. I don't know whether I told you. I don't in my so. early days as a mother in Hong Kong, I was at a tea party, you know, normal British society, right? Mm -hmm. Colonial times, you have afternoon tea. And someone said to me, oh, well, you know, Chinese women, Chinese Thai Thais, you don't volunteer. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'll show you. I'll show you. It's, it's untrue. It's a myth. So I signed myself up with a children's charity, Protection of Children, mm -hmm. because I felt that was something I could do because as a mother... And as a woman, I can help other women who may be less fortunate than we are and children who are orphans or abandoned. So I volunteered for, I think, two hours, you know, in a month. Then I found that I was good at it and I enjoyed it and I wanted to do it. So a volunteerism turned into decades of service and it helped me to understand the, the challenges that an NGO face or charity face. And in those days, it really was charitable. You know, you put your name on the door and you forgot about it. You didn't even know whether it went, the funds you gave actually did the good that you wanted it to give. So we have moved on in the several decades. So that started me in the social sector and I've never regretted it mm -hmm. because I also think in everything you do, there is a journey, there is, there is a faith, there is a calling. So that was the calling. And so when the bank came around and offered me the job, I thought, oh my goodness, someone actually wants to hire me to do something that I love. So I was, I was, I was very, very, you know, enthused about that. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about JP Morgan. I'm, as you know, and our listeners know, I, I'm a big fan of Jamie Dimon. I think he sets the tone in terms of leadership and it cascades down through the organization globally. Do you agree? And tell us a little bit about that culture that uh, keeps you there all these years. I think it's a culture that's within our DNA. I truly believe that. So no, no sooner did I join the bank. I think it must have been in the first month or two I remember Jamie Dimon visiting Asia. And I also remember that I was addressing a group of second, third generation that used to come in every summer and they learn banking principles. They go through one department to another. And we were talking about uh, philanthropy and we were talking about giving back. 
And he came in and he addressed the room. And the sentence that he used, that's still in my, in my mind, is that it's our responsibility to build vibrant communities wherever we live and work. Those words are deeply engraved in my mind because it's what I believe in. It is our job, our responsibility to help build the communities or the neighborhood where I live. So during COVID is do we help the communities around us who may not have the same test kits or food, et cetera. But it's also where we work. Where we work, we need to talk about it as well. And I think sometimes we are so busy, we forget about talking about it. So I feel that in the social sector and the role that I have with the bank, that's what I need to do. Mm-hmm. So I do orientation, I speak to young people, and I encourage them to volunteer. And I explain to them the model of the firm. First of all, is first class business, first class way. Got to put the right foot forward every day because that's who we represent. We represent our employer every minute that we are in that seat. And mm-hmm. we should talk about our corporate responsibility, how well we do in each of the city where we live and what we're doing. And I think that's really important. And and demonstrate it in your actions. I I agree. Tell us a little bit, Jean, then about how how the rubber meets the road, like the philanthropy center and the work that you're doing. Could you maybe share an example or two? I think, again, I think COVID brought out the best and the worst in all of us. The best meaning that we need to really get on with it. There's an urgency to link humanitarian issues with our global health. So the SDGs are glaring at me right in the face. But equally, at the same time, it brought out the worst of us because it really showed us the the gap. Whether it's gap in wealth or gap in the social sector, we really have seen how children who have missed school will never be able to go back, a lot of them. And we've also seen how we have really seen many more refugees or asylum seekers or migrant workers who happen to fall in the cracks. Because when the pandemic, if you got it, nobody's responsibility and it's really sad. So what I do in the private bank for our clients in the philanthropy center and our platform is really work with our clients and their families in figuring out, first of all, where is their passion? That's the first thing. And can their passion meet reality? How does that work? Then the second thing is, how do we help them to find and select the strategic partner? In any business you're in, whether it's for-profit or for-nonprofit, you need to find a way to identify the best strategic partner that you can have so you can realize your dream. Because if your partner cannot help you, your inspiration or your aspiration is just gone aside. So then the third thing I feel is you've got to determine your KPI, your evaluation, and then how you launch a pilot. But at the same time, embrace the public sector because the public sector can be the heroes. Their pressure points are different than the private sector. Mm -hmm. So if the two of them, private and public, can meet together with the social sector to bring the ecosystem, Mm -hmm. you have advocated for change Mm -hmm. and you have to have scale. Because no matter what, how much you've got or uh, how strong you are, the only people who can really give it scale and advocate for change is policy change. If we see policy change, that every child gets to school, 
every child gets a school meal, that everybody gets an opportunity in their, in their life and career, we would have a much better world. How do we compress that pyramid, turn it around and make sure that we don't leave anybody into the cracks? And I also, uh, I like that concept of building coalitions because really you need all hands on deck for the kinds of issues we're talking about, whether it's COVID or climate, the SDGs that you cited. As you look across the Asia region, how do you do that? You sit down with a group of families at a time or one family at a time, or you do seminars. How do you help catalyze that change? All of the above. I think what we do here at the private bank is we have what we call a team model, an integrated team model. We've got experts in every part of the financial spectrum. So we have a banker, investor, you know, credit rates, et cetera, and we have wealth management and we have philanthropy. Mm-hmm. So depending on what the client or the philanthropist is interested in, the first thing to do is listen to them, hear their passion or compassion, work out the family dynamics, because everybody's different. You know, I always uh, cite the example that someone can tell me, oh, we're really into education for, for children. But you and I know education for children has many, many components. What do you mean? Do you mean zero to two? Do you mean elementary, et cetera, et cetera? But even to get them a basic breakfast in the morning so they can have focus. I'll answer to that one, Toby. Even if it's basic breakfast, I will say, why do you want to give it? Because the breakfast is just one part of that system of that family. If that child is coming to school or children without breakfast, it means that there's fundamentally something missing in that environment. Mm -hmm. The parents may not have jobs or single parents or maybe even bad parenting. Mm -hmm. So how do we go to the root of that problem? Should we be helping the parents to be more educated so they can get jobs? Or they understand that it's important to feed your children before Mm -hmm. you go to school. I mean, I know I fall into that. I don't like breakfast. So I would never think of, you know, giving, you know, thinking about, oh, let's have breakfast before we go. But I think when you're a parent, you know, I, I've never liked breakfast. Of course, you get up and the first no, thing no. I do is, you know, feed the children. But there are people who they're very busy, you know, at work and, and maybe, you know, it's not something important. But at the same time, that looking after your children starts at home. And again, it goes back to my value system. We, we think we send our children to school and they learn values at school. Well, yes and no. Mm-hmm. They can go to school and learn about learning virtues. They can learn about geometry or whatever. But the principle of values in your, in, in your family, in your heart, in your mind comes from home. Mm-hmm. So again, in our fragmented world, We need to go back and look at the whole uh, family system. How do we transform education so it gives the right values to our children? How do we transform the learning curve? Mm -hmm. Should we be biasing, basing education on, you can be a Toby, you can be a Jamie, whoever. You need to be yourself. Mm -hmm. Because if we're happy with who we are and what we do, we'll have a much more productive world. Ladies and gentlemen, again today on The Caring Economy, I'm thrilled to have my pal, Jean Sung. She's the ex- executive director and head of the Philanthropy Center at J.P. Morgan Private Bank for Asia. We have collaborated on so many things through the years, Jean. I can remember doing 
fireside chats at the Summer Palace in Beijing with Sue Rockefeller, mm -hmm. a mutual friend of ours. And uh, we had the IU Foundation in from China to your headquarters nice. in Park Avenue and talked to high net worth individuals about wealth transfer and values transfer. Can you reflect on the past couple of decades in your work and do any kind of trend analysis or have you seen certain things that have risen, other things that have fallen, either areas of philanthropy or the, the concept of impact investing? What, what sorts of things have struck you in your great career? I think what is quite evident is the increase of women, women in philanthropy. I think globally in the last two decades, I think women have come on to their own. They have careers, they are independent and they can multitask. I, I love you, Toby, but I think women multitask in many, many different fields because you, you can go to work, you can be a mom, you can be a wife, you can be a daughter and you can can be very, very successful. And we have many women uh, who are successful entrepreneurs and, you know, leading different companies. But at the same time, I think we also see the increase of second, third generation. These givers are less patient than their first generation. They can pick up the phone just like that and find 10 of their best friends. If they are hooked on an issue, a program or service, they don't have to wait. They can get 10 of their friends, accumulate, collaborate resources, and that, that program or service immediately have a greater impact, greater depth. But the trick there is still how to find the right partner, the partner that will realize your dream, the partner who can realize what you want to do. I think there's more outcome than output. Years ago, it was output. What's the output? 200 children, 20 children, whatever. Mm -hmm. Today is what's the outcome. Now, I would like to preface it by saying that unless we follow someone from zero to whatever, it's very difficult to evaluate or monetize whether your gift or your, or your service has actually made a difference to that person. So more and more I see in the work that I do in the private bank for our clients is the ask of future leadership. How do we nurture and educate the next generation so we have a next generation of leaders, regardless whether they're in the social, private, or public sector? We see many philanthropists that say, you know, a scholarship is not enough. But is the scholarship giving that young person the mindset of service beyond self? And I believe that, and it's very evident in the McCain Global Leaders Program. Mrs. McCain is probably one of the best ambassadors in talking about service beyond self and also about the necessity to stop human trafficking. Mm -hmm. Because as long as that's a business and greed will set in and human lives will suffer. The education, the different levels of programs that I see philanthropists offering is how do we inspire future leaders? But also we are seeing the trend covering some social issues that once upon a time we don't want to touch because it's too political, it's too sensitive, like human trafficking, you know, mm, let's call it something else. But the reality is it exists. The reality is we've got migrants, we've got refugees. And as long as this world is fragmented and fragile without leadership, we're going to continue to see that. So I think many leaders that I work with and in, in the private bank and the philanthropists, they're all saying, well, 
how do we create those programs? Where does it start? What is it? And here I have to add that I'm very fortunate. I work with another family in Asia. Their motto is, how do we build bridges across Asia, mm-hmm. across cultures? Mm-hmm. Now, how powerful is, is, is that? Is they are in their seventh year, and, they are met, and I think there are thousands oh. of cohorts now. You and I have a mutual friend, longer friend for you, Rana Chow, who's been a guest on this show. And what her father did and she does with their uh, education across Asia is very much that. It's bridge building and a critical component of leadership today. We've got to knit people back together because the world is so divided. My own family is divided. So I know critical. Absolutely. But as long as there are folks like yourself, like ourselves, whose daily work ethic is to bring people together. Mm -hmm. I think I'm very lucky, blessed to have the role that I have at the bank. I have senior management support. I have mentors in the firm that gives me the opportunity to work, to do what we know best, to help clients to give back. And it's also a, a possibility that they could collaborate. You asked me early on about the legacy series, mm-hmm. and that's exactly that. I think when we look at Asia today and in Singapore, Southeast Asia, we have a few jurisdictions. And again, they're looking at, do I want to be leaving a legacy or do I just want to leave being a rich, wealthy man? Mm -hmm. What is more important? Mm -hmm. So the legacy series talk about the importance of cooperating in your jurisdiction. What are the possibilities that you can work and that would harness your financials as well as your social distribution. Mm -hmm. In the next episode, we're going to be talking about what are some models of giving. Is it grants or is it impactful investments in your community? And the third episode, which will come in in September, will be on intergeneration, the next generation. Mm -hmm. How do they feel about giving back? Yeah, because the great transfer of wealth is happening globally. And that's one of the things we talked about with the IU Foundation and I do in my work in general. During COVID, we're all locked down, but you and Peter, your wonderful husband, you are busy, you're engaged, you've got a full career, you've got children, grandchildren. How do you find balance in your life? It is a challenge. If I tell you that's a piece of cake, then I wouldn't be true to myself. I think when one is in kind of lockdown, work from home, I actually said to myself, okay, I'm going to see my husband 24 hours now. So the usual saying is, do you want to see each other 24 hours? But then, you know, you you kind of have this mutual understanding. You each have your space. But we're lucky. We live in a space that we could be separated. Many people are not. But then I discovered that even in quarantine, I think I should write a book on quarantine. I've done five. I actually don't mind it, Toby. I know it sounds ridiculous, but I think that I save two hours of transport every day. I don't have to worry about whether I drive, take an MTR or whatever. I got two extra hours. So how do you create that discipline for yourself with something that I, I worked out? I had a portable washing machine. So I get up in the morning, I do my chores. I, I do all that kind of stuff then I can't exercise, do, you know, there was no gym anyway during COVID. So every hour on the hour, I would walk from window to the door for five minutes. So that's my exercise. And then I'm, I'm very disciplined. I find a space 
that I can work. I kind of find a space that I can eat. Mm -hmm. I kind of find a space. But I got up every day and I got dressed up because I think that is key to your mental health. Because if I sit around all day in my pajamas, which you can do on Zoom, your self-respect goes. You know, I get up every day, you know, and I iron my shirt. I wash it. I iron it. And, you know, you, I, I, I think you've got to be in it to win it, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. so I actually didn't mind quarantine. I'm going in for another quarantine on Tuesday. So looking forward. You're going back to Hong Kong. I hope it's still a brief one. I know how long it's been in parts of Asia. Jean, one last question, and then I'll let you have the last word. Um, you're Catholic. I'm Catholic. You, you practice in a way that I, I'm lapsed, but um, faith still plays an important role in both of our lives. And we both have done different things, but multiple things with the Vatican. Can you say a little bit about the role of faith in your life? Faith is very important. There is a creator. I feel that not only my faith drives me, it's also the faith that drives givers. If I look at the global grants that's being given to people, quite a majority of it is faith-based. And I think regardless of which faith denomination you believe in, it's the same virtue, it's the same value of loving each other and caring for each other. So I applaud you, Toby, the caring economy, the caring world. That's what we need. We need to bring back the caring, the love for each other. So thank you for asking me. And I love the work you do. And let's do some more. Shall, let's make that the last word then. Jean Sung, thank you so much for joining us. Jean is the executive director and head of the Philanthropy Center for J.P. Morgan Private Bank in Asia. A friend, a collaborator. I can't wait until our next big project, friend. We've got to get going on it. We will do that and we will collaborate. During COVID, we're all locked down, but you and Peter, your wonderful husband, you are busy, you're engaged, you've got a full career, you've got children, grandchildren. How do you find balance in your life? It is a challenge. If I tell you that's a piece of cake, then I wouldn't be true to myself. I think when one is in, um, in kind of lockdown, work from home, I actually said to myself, okay, I'm going to see my husband 24 hours now. So the usual saying is, do you want to see each other 24 hours? But then, you know, you you kind of have this mutual understanding. You each have your space. But we're lucky. We live in a space that we could be separated. Many people are not. But then I discovered that even in quarantine, I think I should write a book on quarantine. I've done five. I actually don't mind it, Toby. I know it sounds um, ridiculous. But I... But I think that I save two hours of transport every day. I don't have to worry about whether I drive, take an MTR or whatever. I got two extra hours. So how do you create that discipline for yourself was something that I I worked out. I had a portable washing machine. So I get up in the morning, I do my chores. I, I do all that kind of stuff. Then I can't exercise, do, you know, there was no gym anyway during COVID. So every hour on the hour, I would walk from window to the door for five minutes. So that's my exercise. Mm -hmm. 
And then I'm, I'm very disciplined. I find a space that I can work. I kind of find a space that I can eat. Mm. I kind of find a space. But I got up every day and I got dressed up because yeah. I think that is key to your mental health. Because if I sit around all day in my pajamas, which you can do on Zoom, your self-respect goes. Yep. So I and get up. Mine too. <laughs> you know, I get up every day, you know, and I iron my shirt. I wash it. I iron it. And, you know, you, I, I, I think you've got to be in it to win it, right? Yep. So, Absolutely. so I actually didn't mind quarantine. I'm going in for another quarantine on Tuesday. So looking forward. You're going back to Hong Kong. I hope it's still a brief one. I know how long it's been in parts of Asia. Jean, one last question, and then I'll let you have the last word. Um, you're Catholic. I'm Catholic. You, you practice in a way that I, I'm lapsed, but um, faith still plays an important role in both of our lives. And we both have done different things, but multiple things with the Vatican. Um, can you say a little bit about the role of faith in your life? Faith is very important. Um, there, is a, there is a creator. And I feel that not only my faith drives me, um, and it's also the faith that drives givers. If I look at the global uh, grants that's being given. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing the caring economy with your friends and colleagues.